Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. <clears throat> AT&T connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like my Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? Now, in a recent tech news episode, I talked about how a Microsoft engineer named Raymond Chen revealed that the music video for Janet Jackson's 1989 hit Rhythm Nation was, at one time, the crasher of laptops, or at least of certain laptops. Some folks discovered that if they played this video on their laptop computer, or if their laptop computer was close to something else that was playing this music video, their computer would spontaneously crash. Now, to be clear, these computers were not nasty, as Miss Jackson might say. They were not music critics. It turns out that a sound played in that music video matched the resonant frequency of the hard disk drives in these laptops, though it took some time to suss that out. Chen said, 
that these were hard drives that were spinning at 5,400 RPM. That's revolutions per minute. So going around 5,400 times every minute. That's actually on the lower end of what we typically see with hard disk drives. They can top out at more than twice as fast as that. But it's not bad. I mean, you can still go out and buy um, a hard disk drive today that's at 5,400 RPM. People typically like faster ones. It means that you can read and write information to such a, a hard drive faster. Anyway, the sound from the music video was causing the hard drives to vibrate. The platters inside would vibrate, and ultimately this would prompt the computers to crash. So today I thought I'd talk a little bit about hard drives, a bit about resonant frequencies, how a sound could cause a hard drive to actually crash, and maybe talk about some myths surrounding resonance, including one that I kind of perpetuated last week. So I got to hold myself up to uh, correction here. Anyway, first up, if you were to take a hard drive apart, don't do that, by the way, you're more than likely going to destroy it. But you would see that inside the hard disk drive, you have a spindle. And on the spindle would be at least one disk or platter. More likely, it would actually be more than one, perhaps a stack of them. And each platter would be separated from its neighbors by a small gap. And the platters are kind of similar to a compact disc in some ways, but compact discs store information that's read and written through an optical drive. So with light, lasers specifically. Hard discs store information magnetically, not through optics. Now this platter or these platters are what spin inside a hard disk drive. Coating the platter is a thin layer of magnetic grains. So using an electromagnetic head, the computer can write data to the platter by realigning these magnetic grains so that they point in a specific direction, essentially pointing magnetic north or pointing magnetic south, and thus they can represent zeros and ones. When the platter spins beneath the head, or above the head, depending on how this goes, uh, and the head is in passive mode, there's a little detector, essentially, on the head that can pick up the magnetic fluctuations from these aligned regions that are passing uh, near it as the disk is spinning. So it's being read. Now, the head, in this case, uh, can look a bit like tweezers in a sense. Uh, there's typically a pair of arms, one that goes over the top of the platter, one that's beneath. They are not making contact with the platter. In fact, if they were to touch the platter, that would damage the hard drive. Uh, you know, got to keep in mind, these platters are spinning super fast. So these electromagnets are separated from the platters. They're not actually touching. They're, they're hovering above and below. Um, so really, like every head is usually a, a pair of read-write heads. There's one on top, one beneath each platter. That allows the computer to store information on either side of platters. And as I said, your typical hard drive often has several of these platters arranged in a stack, separated from each of them by a small gap. And each platter has its own read-write head. But that is the super basic way that hard drives work. Uh, I'm not even getting into things like actually how you store a file on these platters because it's not as simple as like the groove on a, on a vinyl album representing a song. It's not like that. 
But the reason for this rapid rotational speed is that you do want to be able to read and write information uh, from this hard disk drive quickly. And, you know, if it didn't spin at these fast rates, it would take forever, which is hyperbole. It would take a really long time for your computer to retrieve stored information from the hard disk drive. And it blows my mind that you can have platters spinning 5,400 times per minute or faster and read or write information to those platters storing gigabytes of data in the process. Technology is really kind of like magic, except, you know, it works. Now, if you have a mechanical device like this, clearly everything needs to be in proper alignment or else you're going to have problems. Jostling a hard disk drive can potentially knock a disk off kilter, which would mean that once the spindle that the disks are on starts to spin, you're going to have some damage, possibly catastrophic damage. The platters need to maintain both horizontal and vertical alignment. And honestly, knowing how delicate a hard disk drive can be, I'm actually amazed that my first ever MP3 player survived for so many years. I had a Creative Zen device, which had a spinning hard disk drive inside of it. Uh, which is a very tiny little hard drive. And I, I say I'm amazed it survived because I know that thing took a tumble more than once and the impact could have been enough to damage the hard drive, but I guess I had more luck than brains. Anyway, according to a data recovery firm called Drive Savers, 70% of hard disk drive failures are the result of damaged recording surfaces, typically created as the result of a physical shock. Other potential causes for failure include things like circuit board problems, uh, stiction, which is the combination of friction and sticking, where if you haven't used a hard disk drive for a long time, sometimes there can be this kind of friction sticking issue that impedes the, uh, the disks from spinning. And also drive motor failure, which makes up like less than a percent of all the hard disk drive failure. So usually the motor doesn't, isn't the problem. Uh, by the time the motor has given out, something else has already failed in that hard disk. Now, if something were to cause the hard drive to stop spinning while it's in operation, you get a hard disk drive failure, and that prompts a full crash of the computer. And this brings us to Janet, or Miss Jackson, if I'm nasty. And it turns out that the song Rhythm Nation has within it a frequency that resonates with a certain popular model of hard disk drives from many years ago. So... This isn't really about current tech. We're actually talking about machines that were sold around the year 2005. So really kind of amazing that this even became a problem, right? Because Rhythm Nation came out in 1989. This particular <laughs> uh, 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 laptop that was prone to this kind of stuff, or these laptops, I should say, because they all had this hard drive in common. It wasn't the laptop's fault. Those were sold around 2005. And specifically, the, the sound frequency from the music video would resonate with the natural resonant frequency produced by the hard drive when the platter is spinning. So let's talk about frequency and sound and resonance for a bit. With waves, frequency refers to the number of waves that pass a fixed point within a given amount of time. And we use the metric hertz to measure frequencies. So one hertz is equal to one wave passing a fixed point in one second. Two hertz would mean two waves would pass that point in one second. Now, notice I didn't say sound waves here because hertz can refer to any kind of wave or oscillation. So 
we can use frequency to talk about stuff like light or sound or all sorts of other things. But in this episode, we're mostly concerned with sound. So if you were to play the middle C on a piano, and assuming that piano had been tuned according to Verdi tuning, which is not standard, uh, the note would produce a frequency of 256 hertz. So that means the sound wave travels at 256 waves past a given fixed point per second. Now, sound waves are really vibrations, right? Physical vibrations. It is a physical phenomenon. Uh, it is why there's no sound in space, because you don't have stuff close enough to transmit vibration from one thing to another. And you have to have stuff close enough to vibrate and affect other things in order for that to propagate, for it to travel. Most of the stuff we hear is traveling through the air. So in this case, the vibrations we're talking about are typically these little fluctuations in air pressure. You can kind of imagine that these changes in air pressure are effectively pushing against and pulling on your eardrum just slightly, which then transmits those vibrations to our inner ear. Our brains ultimately interpret this signal as sound and the frequency at which the air fluctuations affect our eardrums determines what pitch we hear. So slower frequencies produce lower pitches, faster frequencies produce faster pitches. 256 fluctuations, like full fluctuations per second, produces middle C. Now, let's talk about resonant frequencies. Systems have a frequency that they tend to oscillate at. The reason middle C sounds like middle C is that there is a string in that piano that's at the right length and it's at the right tension to produce that frequency when that string is struck by a hammer. When you push down on the key, a hammer strikes the string and it vibrates at this frequency and thus we hear that middle C. Similarly, if you take a wine glass and you tap the wine glass, you'll hear it ring out a tone. That tone is the resonant frequency, the natural frequency for that glass. It's the frequency at which it tends to oscillate naturally when struck. Now, if you were to produce that same tone near the glass, you would cause the glass to vibrate. You would induce vibration in the glass. If you produce the tone with enough volume or amplitude, if we're talking about waves, that vibration can start to deform the glass enough to cause the wine glass to shatter. And you've probably seen examples of this. You know, the classic one is you have an opera singer singing a clear note and holding a wine glass and the glass inevitably breaks apart. That is possible if you have someone with the lung power and the singing ability to produce a strong enough sound at the right frequency, but it ain't easy. In demonstrations and physics classes, folks typically use a tone producer and an amplifier and a speaker, which simplifies things. It's also safer than holding a glass close to your face while trying to make it explode. You can also really dial into the proper frequency. And you can kind of think of this as being similar to pushing someone who is swinging on a swing set. If you push at just the right moment in their arc, you can really get them to go higher without putting in too much effort in your push. But it does have to be at just the right moment within the arc of the swing to give a boost rather than interfere with the arc of the swing. The sound waves 
are kind of giving the glass a boost at just the right frequency for it to oscillate and to keep oscillating. When we come back, we'll talk about what this has to do with hard drives, and we'll talk a bit more about some misconceptions about resonance, including one that, that I kind of talked about. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Okay, so Rhythm Nation's music video had within the music video a sound that was at a frequency that matched the hard disk drive's resonant frequency when it was spinning. So if you were to play the Rhythm Nation music video on one of these laptops, that sound would start to push the platters on the hard disk drive at the frequency that they were naturally going to vibrate at. So they would start vibrating more and more, and that would cause the hard disk drive to crash and the subsequent computer crash. So 
how do you solve this problem? If, if hard disk drives are delicate, you know, that's why they're in these very uh, sturdy cases typically because they need to be protected from everything else. Well, if they're so delicate, how do you protect against this issue? Well, the hard disk drive is a mechanical device and everything has already been engineered to work a specific way. So it's not super easy to change the hard disk drive. You've already sold all these laptops that have it in there. So the solution was really to create a sound filter that would mask the frequency, the resonant frequency. So essentially this filter would block laptops from playing that specific frequency. All the other frequencies could play because they weren't going to resonate with the hard disk, but this one wouldn't. And chances are it was tough for human listeners to even tell the difference because being able to pick out a specific frequency from a whole bunch of them in a song isn't something your average person can do. So the thought was, yeah, this is technically going to have an impact on certain media that contains this frequency, but chances are no one's going to be able to tell the difference anyway, and it won't matter if it's crashing computers. So let's just block that from being able to play on these kinds of laptops. So that filter saved the day, but you could theoretically be working on your computer and the video for Rhythm Nation might play on some other device, like say your home entertainment system. Presumably your home entertainment system would not have this sound filter on it. So your laptop might still crash because that frequency would be present in that version of the music video. So one reason I think Chen brought this up was that if we forget about these things, if we forget about these kinds of, of odd cases that require these patched solutions, then we end up with stuff that's no longer really necessary. So like I said earlier, this particular problem was affecting machines sold around 2005. The hard drives today are different, and a lot of laptops don't even use hard disk drives anymore. They use solid state drives, which don't have any moving parts in them. And that means that filter may not actually be necessary anymore. It might not be needed, but it might still be in place on machines because it was in earlier machines, and it ends up being a carryover. So in other words, something that was originally put in place in order to fix a problem stays in place because people haven't bothered to remove it. And if we don't remember why we put something there to begin with, we could just be living with stuff that doesn't really do anything anymore, or that can, can at least at some level impact our experience when we want to jam out to rhythm nation. But let's talk about some other resonant frequency stories and myths and let's start with one I kind of whiffed on last week. So I mentioned when first covering the story that subjecting something to its resonant frequency can be quite destructive, as illustrated by the wine glass demonstration. That clearly shows that a resonant frequency can break something. Well, I also mentioned suspension bridges in that particular news item, which I really should have stopped to think about because I already knew this was not really relevant or correct. Uh, but for some reason it just skipped my mind, but I was referencing a real world disaster that frequently is mentioned, uh, in concert with resonance, but the actual cause of the destruction wasn't resonance. The disaster in question was the collapse of the Tacoma Narrows bridge in the state of Washington in the United States. So construction on this suspension bridge began in the 1930s. The finished project opened for traffic on July 1st, 1940, 
And on November 7th of that year, 1940, we got the collapse. So first let's talk about what a suspension bridge is. So it has advantages over your traditional solid bridges that had, you know, multiple arcs of solid material spanning whatever it is you're building the bridge across, whether it's a chasm or a river or a bay or whatever it might be. One of the big advantages of a suspension bridge is that you need way less material to make a suspension bridge than one of these traditional bridges where really the only thing you have to worry about is that the bridge is able to, you know, withstand the gravitational force of it being pulled down, right? That's it. Like, otherwise they're pretty sturdy. Suspension bridges have other concerns. Suspension bridges can be lighter. They can be less expensive to build because you're using less material. And since the public typically foots the bill for construction of bridges, making construction less expensive is a pretty high priority in most projects. So a suspension bridge consists of two towers, uh, kind of like Tolkien, and these two towers are connected to each other by cables. So those cables also extend further to attach to either end of the bridged area. Uh, you have rods that connect these cables to the bridge's surface, which is also known as the deck. Uh, and so the deck is suspended above whatever it is the bridge is crossing, the chasm, the bay, the river, whatever it might be. Thus, we get suspension bridge. Now, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge was the third longest suspension bridge at the time of its construction. And in an effort to maximize cost efficiency, the bridge was using plate girders along the sides of the bridge to provide rigidity to the deck. Now, typically, instead of girders, you would use trusses. But trusses would require more material and thus would have been more expensive. So this was one of the considerations, one of the, the compromises made to have the bridge be less expensive was to go with this model where you kind of had this, this ribbon-like effect across the bridge as opposed to trusses to make it more rigid. So this compromise meant the bridge was more flexible than other suspension bridges. Too flexible, you would say. Construction workers who were working on building the darn thing referred to it as the galloping girdy because of the girders and because, well... Even before the bridge opened, it was clear that the bridge moved more than it necessarily should, at least under certain conditions. So on November 7th, 1940, in Washington, the winds were in high force. And as these high sustained winds were hitting the suspension bridge, vortices were forming. So when a fluid hits a blunt object, vortices form as the fluid moves around and then beyond the object. Uh, so if you could see the wind, you would see it was creating this sort of wiggly vortices behind the uh, components that was hitting on the bridge. And we were talking about some issues with resonance here. If those vibrations were at the right frequency, then it starts to impart vibrations into the bridge itself and the bridge begins to move up and down. And that, in fact, did happen. So there was at least some movement of the bridge on November 7th that related to resonance. However, that was not what caused the bridge to ultimately break apart and collapse. So the bridge began to twist, not just move up and down, but starting to twist along its length. And that was really the problem. And that twisting didn't come from resonance. Instead, the wind was hitting these girders along the side. 
and the vortices that were forming were causing the bridge to move in a specific way. Like one side would move down, the other side would move up. But then the bridge would try to return back to its neutral position, you know, being level instead of being tilted to the left or to the right. But when it would return, it would go beyond its normal rest spot due to momentum. Kind of like how if you pluck a string, it actually moves beyond its rest position when it, when it, uh, uh, when you let it go. So the wind would then push on the girders again as they had reached their other side, kind of like, you know, pushing someone on a swing. And this introduced what engineers refer to as aeroelastic flutter. If you hold up a sheet of paper to the wind and you see it like fluttering back and forth, vibrating kind of in your hand, you can see an example of aeroelastic flutter. This is not resonance. It's a separate phenomenon. So it ends up shaking up the bridge, but it's not because it's at a resonant frequency. It's because the wind is creating these vortices that are putting uh, additional pressures on the bridge and making it twist back and forth. And, you know, when you physically move stuff like that, like if you're wiggling something over and over and over again, you weaken it. And at around 11 a.m., some concrete from the bridge structure broke loose from the deck and fell down. Then a cable broke and that drastically impacted stabilization and it began to twist even more violently and eventually the bridge buckled and collapsed. Uh, reports say that at the peak of the twisting motion, the sidewalk on one side, like the left side of the bridge, would be nearly 30 feet higher than the sidewalk on the opposite side of the bridge, like on the right side. Um, as you were going down the bridge and that is terrifying to think of. Also there's film of this happening. You can watch videos on YouTube showing the twisting of the Tacoma Narrows bridge. And it is dramatic to say the least. But as I said, resonance ultimately did not play the major part of destruction on that bridge. It did have an impact, but the actual destruction came from these vortices and the aeroelastic flutter. Now, when we come back, we'll talk about another mythical story about resonance and our good friend Nikola Tesla. But first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Ah, Tesla. Uh, Depending on what circles you run in on the internet, Tesla can either be looked at as uh, a a very eccentric, tortured person who uh, had to struggle with mental health issues for much of his life and who got the raw end of the deal on more than one occasion, but also was a heck of a self-promoter. Uh, Or you might see him as an unimpeachable source of genius and innovation who had come up with almost magical technologies that never manifested, but he totally had them in his head like death rays and stuff. Um, I tend to go on the more modest side. uh, and, And I would never say that Tesla was not a genius. He clearly was a genius. But again, he was a born self-promoter. In fact, I would say he was pretty darn similar to Thomas Edison in that regard. And a lot of folks kind of refer to Thomas Edison as being Lex Luthor to Nikola Tesla's Superman, uh, that they were two sides of the same coin. Uh, I think that's being more than a little melodramatic personally. But one thing Nikola Tesla experimented with was an oscillating or reciprocating electric generator. And in fact, he got it to work. Uh, The principle was very much sound. It's just that he found a better way of accomplishing what his goal was, which was to create uh, a, a sustained, consistent, alternating current. So let's break this down. Now, imagine that you've got kind of like, it looks kind of like a metal post uh, that's several inches long, maybe, you know, maybe up to a foot or maybe even bigger uh, and cylindrical in nature. Inside of that, you had a chamber where there was a piston that could go up and down the the chamber or cylinder. This piston would drive uh, a post like an iron core that had copper wire wrapped around it. And this wire would connect to a circuit of some sort. And uh, that would freely move up and down the the length of this one chamber. 
you know, based upon the movements of this piston inside a cylinder. Now, surrounding this rod with copper coil on it was an electromagnet uh, connected to a battery. So a battery generates direct current. That means the electricity always flows in the same direction from, uh, I mean, if you're talking about, <laughs> if you're talking about the way Benjamin Franklin thought of it, it goes from positive to negative. Uh, the actual electrons go from negative to positive, but you know, you, you get what I'm saying. So it always flows in that direction. It cannot reverse with direct current. So the electromagnet inside this piston generator thing was acting just like a stationary permanent magnet was. In fact, Tesla could have just put a very powerful permanent magnet in this thing. It would have worked the same way. When you move a conductor through a stationary magnetic field, so like you have a conductive material and you pass it through a magnetic field, that induces electricity to flow within the conductor. You induce electric current. By moving the conductor up and down past this electric, uh, magnetic field rather, then, uh, you know, having this oscillating or reciprocating action as the, the coil moves up and down through this, this magnetic field, you actually have a similar effect as if the magnetic field was fluctuating, was reversing its current back and forth. So it's, the, it's almost the same as if the, the coil were stationary, but the electromagnet around it was powered by alternating current. Now, the reason why this is important is that that would actually reverse the flow of electricity through that coil. You generate alternating current by moving this, this coil up and down through this magnetic field. So you take a direct current source from the battery into this reciprocating electric generator, and by moving this piston up and down, you can output alternating current. Uh, to provide the up and down power to move the coil, we have to go to the piston. Now, in this early invention, the piston was driven by steam power. Now, I wish I could adequately describe Tesla's design here because it really was genius. I mean, it was a beautiful approach to creating a piston that can move up and down, be driven by steam. And it was beautifully simple uh, in design. However, to describe it is really hard to do without visual aids. There are videos that you can watch that show how this worked, and I recommend you check it out if you want. But what you need to know is that Tesla's piston served also as a valve, and that valve controlled where steam could enter and exit the cylinder that the piston was moving in. So Tesla was using steam for both directions of the stroke of the piston. So the upward and the downward movements of the piston were driven by steam. Steam would push the piston down, steam would push the piston back up, and this would drive that coil to move up and down the magnetic field further up inside the electric generator. And thus the piston was providing the reciprocating motion. Now let's get to resonance. So the story Tesla told is that he was working in the lab late one night when his eyes beheld an eerie sight. Because his reciprocating electric generator, or some oscillator that was similar to it because it changes from story to story, was moving at the same frequency as his building's natural frequency. Some versions of the story say that he had attached the piston to a girder to provide stability. Because obviously if you have something that's 
moving up and down rapidly. It's going to be clattering all over the place unless you strap it down somewhere. So he was saying that he was tuning in the resonance or, or the frequency rather of this oscillator. So it resonated with the, the girder that it was connected to within his building. And thus he began to introduce increasingly violent vibrations into the building. And those vibrations continued to build in intensity and it led to a small man-made earthquake, leading a lot of people to call this Tesla's earthquake machine. Then the story goes that police and ambulances responded to the scene and they got there just as Tesla was either taking a sledgehammer to his generator to stop it from tearing the joint apart or that he had already stopped it and that he was just playing coy and saying, oh, I didn't even notice an earthquake. Now, could such a thing be possible? Maybe. You could theoretically create a reciprocating device and tune it to a frequency that induces vibrations in a structure. And theoretically, you could maybe do one powerful enough that ultimately it would start to cause damage. But we need to keep several things in mind here. One is that Tesla mostly told this story in his declining years. Uh, the account I see most frequently cited comes from an article that was published in 1935 on Tesla's 79th birthday. And that the actual shaking of the building was said to have happened either in 1887 or 1888, according to that article. So even that article doesn't get specific on when this supposedly happened. And a different source targets the, the event to 1898. So we don't even have agreement of when this supposed earthquake happened. Tesla also told other stories at that same party that are referenced in the article I was mentioning like the fact that he had discovered cosmic radiation before anyone else did. He just didn't think to tell anyone about it. And that he found there are particles that travel perhaps as much as 500 times faster than the speed of light, which just isn't true. So my point is that Tesla is at best an unreliable source when it comes to stories about his own work. In many ways, his life depended upon his fame. Uh, at this stage in his life, he was drifting from hotel to hotel in an effort to avoid homelessness. And hotels would be happy to receive the famous Tesla, at least initially, but eventually his welcome would wear out and he'd take the show on the road again. So I have my doubts about Tesla's stories. At least I doubt he was producing enough vibration to simulate an earthquake. And I definitely doubt the versions that suggest that not only was his building shaking, but that glass was bursting from nearby buildings and that the road outside was quaking. I don't believe that for a second. And one reason I doubt this is that you've got a lot of material in buildings that can have a dampening effect on vibrations, right? Not everything is contributing to this resonant frequency, this resonant oscillation. Some stuff ends up resisting that and inhibiting that. And typically, or, or usually like the larger the thing you're trying to, to, to vibrate, the larger the thing you're trying to, to shake apart, the more force you need to really get things going. In other words, if you walk up to a building and you happen to know exactly how frequently you need to tap on a girder to match the, the frequency of that girder and you do it, 
uh, yeah, you're tapping at it and you could probably feel those vibrations along the length of the girder, but you're not going to force it to, to break apart. You'd have to use more force than that. Pushing a kid at just the right moment in a swings arc gives the kid a significant boost, but you do have to push. You can't just, you know, like tap. It's not going to do anything. So the source of the vibrations have to produce waves of significant amplitude to affect something like a building. Same thing with the wine glass, right? If you can produce the right note, but you're not producing it at a high enough volume, the glass won't break. It'll vibrate. If you put something like a piece of paper inside the glass, you'll see the paper jump around because the glass will be vibrating, but it won't be enough to cause the glass to deform to the point where it breaks. So I just doubt that Tesla's oscillator would be able to do it, particularly the way he was describing it in his later uh, descriptions of the technology. He said that he had a, 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 an air-powered one that could fit in your pocket. So it was like a smaller version of the oscillating electric generator. So technically, yes, I think you could do this if you had something that was significantly powerful enough to introduce vibrations that would ultimately cause destruction. I just don't think Tesla's did it. I don't think so. Uh, but I could be wrong. It's it, The hard thing is that there just aren't any reliable sources outside of Tesla, and Tesla was not a reliable source. He made a lot of claims that uh, have been unsubstantiated, and uh, many of them, I believe, were really meant to help keep him in the public eye so that he could you know, live out his life with as little hardship as he could. Again, he lived a rather tortured existence. So I, no hard feelings against the guy. He was just trying to get through life uh, under <laughs> frustrating, to say the least, circumstances. I mean, I could go into the whole story about Tesla and Marconi. If you think Tesla and Edison is one of those big tales of two people, you know, posed against each other, which really... I would say Edison and Westinghouse really is that story. That's nothing compared to Marconi and, and Tesla in my mind. But that's a story for another time. Anyway, hope you enjoyed this discussion about resonant frequencies and how a Janet Jackson music video was shutting down computers left and right in 2005. I found it interesting. Hope you did too. If you would like me to cover something specific on tech stuff, please reach out to me. One way to do that is to download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download. You can navigate over to Tech Stuff, push the little microphone icon, leave a voice message up to 30 seconds in length and let me know there. Or you can drop me a line on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. <laughs> <laughs> 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 